Oh, yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science Happy Hour. It is the holiday edition of the Happy Hour. Welcome, everybody. Hope you guys got an opportunity to check out the very, very special episode that I released on uh, Monday. It was just me talking to you guys, and I made you guys a mixtape, so definitely check it out. Um, people are funneling into the weight room like crazy. It is, uh, it's going on, man. It, it, it's happening. Uh, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Artist of Day of Science. Happy hour. So happy to have you guys here. Um, so I want to kick this session off with a question that was sent to me on email by one of our listeners named uh, Jay. And Jay wants to know, what is the day-to-day activities of a data scientist in a non-research organization? Do they work from home or similar lifestyle like software engineering or other types of jobs? What's the work-life balance for a data scientist? Um, I mean, I'd say the work-life balance is pretty well considering that all of us are here in various time zones hanging out in a massive Zoom chat. So I think work-life balance is quite nice for data scientists. Um, I'd love to hear from, uh, let's hear from Tom. And also, I can't believe there's so many freaking people in here. This is awesome. Hey, everybody. I have to personally rejoice, and I almost want to do a jig because Susan Walsh is in the house. Where's Susan? <laughs> I, and guys, I, I know I'm not putting her on the spot. She's planned a special lip sync for us, right? Oh, really? No! This is, this yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, just go watch one of her many lip sync posts. That'll do it for you. Yes, I will. we need to have a proper sing session, Susan. Uh, we have a need to duet. That's what we need. Yes, that as well. So, Harpreet, your question. Um, and I, I don't say this completely jokingly. I don't know that balance and data scientists go together in any sentence or even any paragraph. I'd like to borrow from the extreme wisdom of Gary Keller, who was the founder of uh, Keller Williams Real Estate. He wrote a book called The One Thing that I had to read because I'm a triaholic. That means I was, I was, I, I still have to fight not doing too many things. And, um, He made a point. There's no real such thing as balance when you're trying to excel and and do good things. It's more about every once in a while, you got to stop and try to rebalance. And I, I've found over my many years around the sun that that that's pretty accurate. And I'll shut up and listen. What's that cliche thing that Bezos said? It's not work-life balance. It's work-life integration. I don't know if I believe that. I don't really know what that means, but it's a whole thing and it's trending right now. Maybe it's true like that work-life integration so let's hear from my good friend john sebastian yo john sebastian is one of the mentors at data science dream job uh one of my good friends super excited you can make it man yeah well i'm super happy to be here of course so it is my first time which is kind of strange considering that you know we work together and still haven't haven't had the time to to stop by and say hi to everyone but hey here i am um so so yeah what was the question again um how is it to to be a data scientist outside of academia yeah like outside correct in, in, yeah what's the day-to-day activities in a non-research organization and you come from a research background right and now you're kind of yes like, yeah i spent almost 10 years if not a little bit more in research and then i switched to uh, to the industry maybe a year and a half ago so, um, so yes, I would say when it, when it comes down to my day-to-day, um, of course, you know, 
every day is different, but generally speaking, um, I would uh, touch base with my colleagues and we would, uh, well, we don't do this every day, but still, you know, just to, just to make us look very, very good. Uh, basically, uh, at the beginning of each day, we would talk uh, maybe 15, 30 minutes just to have an idea of what we did the day before, uh, what we're planning to do uh, today. And, um, and we would just, you know, exchange some ideas about how we could uh, tackle some problem or, or some issues that we'll be having probably during the day. And, um, and it, it's a good time for us to uh, explain our problems, which is always, you know, the first step uh, to everything and also to get feedback uh, from uh, colleagues as well. And then, you know, we basically, it starts uh, meetings after meetings after meetings, and then you realize that, hey, you know, I, I kind of have to do some work. Um, but yeah, uh, so, so that would be probably how it starts. And then, uh, of course, you know, we all have our individual projects um, and we try to, to do, you know, as much work as we can. Uh, being home, is, it's awesome, but at the same time, it's awful uh, because you really need to, to, uh, to get, you know, a, a specific room for you to work. Otherwise, you know, your, your work-life balance is just, out of the window. Uh, so yeah, so I have my office here, so it's okay. Um, and, and yeah, and I think the most important thing is to make sure like every hour to take a break uh, because it's easy just to sit here and uh, just work. Uh, I, I think there's something that is missing, not being like at work is that, and we don't realize that, but you know, every once in a while, someone will come up to you and say, hey, you know, let's grab a coffee and without thinking, you just go and 15 minutes or a half an hour later, you come back and you start working again. And fortunately, unfortunately, we don't do this, uh, you know, in this situation. So we don't realize we work a little bit too much. And uh, after a while, we just get tired and we don't know why. And now it's Friday, it's 5.30 here on East Coast and it feels good to be here, so. So to answer Jay's question, a data scientist is just a regular ass job, just like everybody else's <laughs> job. Uh, it's not that much special, except we just get to use data and science. Anybody else want to talk about what their day-to-day -day is like? This was a question that came in from one of our listeners, Jay. He just wants to know what the day-to-day -day activities of a data scientist in a non-research organization are. Um, we'll get one more response, and then we'll open it up for other questions. Vin, what's your day-to-day -day like? Needs to be better on uh, remembering to turn that mute button on and off. <laughs> um, for me, my day is kind of crazy. I, I think I'm a little bit unique because I do the strategy side of the house. So I take a lot of meetings. Uh, I spend a whole lot of time not talking and then maybe say in two or three sentences. And that's, you know, an hour meeting sometimes. And also do the hands-on building, developing. So my day is chaos. And I'll take breaks for like an hour to actually sit down and think. We got that huge whiteboard behind me that sometimes helps, sometimes just has ideas sit on it that never go anywhere. And I think creativity is what I struggle the most to keep in my day-to-day -day sort of work-life balance because a lot of times I'm building something or trying to figure out how to solve a problem, and that just bleeds into my life. You know, my brain doesn't stop working on that problem. The fact that I'm working at home and I have been forever you know, it bleeds together. It starts to, you know, I'll take, I'll take calls downstairs and I'm, you know, at the kitchen table having lunch. And, you know, again, it's just kind of bleeding in 
I'll code late night or early morning. And again, you know, it's, it's, it's so easy because it's right here. I can do work anytime I want to. And that's supposed to be the excuse for me to be able to do only eight hours a day or less than that. And it ends up being the reason why I work 10, 12 hour days sometimes end up working on the weekends. I've got a talk that I'm doing. I'm going to be working through the weekend to prep for it. It, Work-life balance, I think if I was just a pure data scientist, I think it would be a little easier. And if I was in an office, I think it'd be a little easier. But it's, you know, a combination of COVID and what I do, it's integration. I think you're right. Maybe maybe invasion is the right word, work-life invasion. That's an interesting take, man. So, um, Jay, if you're listening, if you're tuning in, that's a day in the life of a data scientist. All right, guys. Well, I just want to take a minute here to just to recognize everybody that showed up. A lot of friends of the podcast. We've got, we've got Vin Vicious. They just heard him. He was on an episode with me once. Street Bots and Street Navas and here doing two two live recordings in one day. Man, you got you got some stamina, Street Bots. And uh, who else do we got? We got Tom Ives. We got uh, Dave Langer. Joe Reese. We got Giovanna. We got Greg. Susan Walsh. Uh, oh my God. George, Leona, Jennifer, Mark, Ray, Monica. Oh my God, so many awesome people. You guys are absolutely amazing. Thank you f- so much. That's for an entire time. LinkedIn year. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, it's all of all of uh, uh, LinkedIn data community in, in one spot. This is awesome to see you guys. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come hang out with me on this Friday, right before the holidays. I couldn't pick any better place to be than right here right now with all of you guys so thank you so much for for being here so we got a question in the chat from Sorab. Sorab, you want to go ahead and unmute yourself and we can help you out here hey Arpit. hi everyone uh, this is my first uh, zoom meeting first uh, open office hours uh, harpreet i'm a big fan of your podcast um a lot of big names here so uh, excuse me if i'm asking some stupid questions um no such thing uh, so I am a project manager, uh, basically, um, been 15 years in IT industry. Um, I'm really uh, curious and keen uh, to switch to data science. I've been reading about it, been uh, connected to most of the big names here, Win Vashesh, uh, Dave Langer, Eric, everyone, uh, mostly everyone. Um, my question is, um, uh, Someone starting new, uh, there are so many avenues. So for example, we have um, a, a, like SAS data science, uh, data scientist program. Then we have Tableau um, data scientist. Then we have Azure data scientist. How relevant or how useful that is in the industry. So uh, I, I myself in the industry, but not in data science field. But if someone has to pursue any of these programs, when you know you might be interviewing people, you might be, um, recruiting data scientists um, all around. How relevant are these branded certifications out there? All right. So that's a great question, actually. Um, so if I can distill that down, it's there's so many different tools out there to pick up. And some of these tools end up offering some type of certification at the end. How do I decide which one I want to take? And, and what's the benefit of picking one over the other? Did I get, kind of get that right? All right. So I can say that... Um, yeah. When it comes to SaaS, like SaaS is really used in very highly regulated industries. So when I was a biostatistician working in a pharmaceutical company, SaaS was huge. Like we had to do everything in SaaS. And then when I was a actuary in the insurance industry, again, everything had to be done in SaaS because it was a quote unquote, I guess, validated software as they call it. 
So for certain industries, you can't really use open source, right? Those are two examples uh, right there. Um, that being said, I'd like to flip it to, uh, let's see if uh, Sri Watson wants to help tackle this one. Yeah, so uh, I think you rightly pointed out, Arpit, right? Like SaaS is still used if you take banking or many regulated industries. Uh, some of their traditional risk model or even like forecasting models still run on SaaS. Now, I would, I would just... Uh, come back to the question, right? What do you want to do? Because SaaS and Tableau or other tools are like different uh, part of the data science lifecycle and you're coming from project management. Now you have other avenues as well to enter into data science. Uh, from a project management perspective, you can just uh, kind of move yourself to more like product management. I know it's not an easy transition. Uh, I don't want to kind of say like it's going to be easy, but at the same time, uh, take your domain knowledge that you're working with. Like even if you're in a project management, you'll be working in a particular uh, in a particular domain. Can you take that domain knowledge and get into product management where you work with multiple stakeholders, set up the background, and also like uh, create a roadmap for the data product, right? That is one part. And then slowly see what tools to use. Because you have 15 plus years of experience. If you're good at domain, any domain, start with that, right? And now coming to tool, then you can decide you want to be on the visualization side or you want to be the modeling side. That's where SaaS or Wasas Tableau comes into play. Because if you take Tableau, it's one of the leading tool in the visualization world, followed by Click or other tools. So definitely these tools are useful, but it all depends on how you want to transition your career into data science. That's an excellent point. So that's a great point about which tools to pick. And then when it comes to picking like which resources to pick, I don't think there's any like one magic course that's going to teach you everything or separate from anything else in terms of content. But there are courses that are done with, you know, trusted reliable, long-term thinking individuals who really put in the work and effort into how they create their content. For example, Dave Langer, he's got an excellent course. Uh, so Dave, I'd love to hear about uh, what you think about his question about which tech stack should I pick up? What's, uh, what's the benefit of one over the other? Yeah. So my perspective is based on being in the technology industry for more than 20 years. Technology comes and goes. So R was around for a long time before it became hot. Python was around for a long time before it became hot. Python and R will eventually be cold technologies over a long enough timeline. Trust me on this, it's gonna happen. So picking a particular technology stack, I would say is going to be a tactical decision based on researching the kinds of jobs and companies you wanna work for and the kinds of things you wanna do for those companies, first and foremost. Because a lot of hiring managers are just going to check the boxes. Do you know this? Do you know that? Great. Understanding the base concepts is what's really super important. Um, so I tend to focus myself, my content on the kinds of things that kind of will stand the test of time, like SQL, for example. You cannot go wrong with learning SQL if you don't know it. And that's independent of a technology stack. However, if Snowflake's really super popular right now, sure, learn SQL with Snowflake. Makes sense. But I would keep that in mind, right? Tech stacks are a tactical decision at a point in time. What you really want to focus on are the core concepts that are going to be reused and useful for you long-term. So that would be fundamentals of machine learning, statistics, data access and data management, like with SQL, things like that, rather than worrying about R or Python or AWS versus Azure or whatever. So it sounds like principles never fade, tools will, will change over time. So focus should be just on picking up the principles that will lay the foundation for you to build on 
later in your career as the tides change and just having the mindset of adaptability to be able to just change whatever tooling you're using and be open to experimenting with it. So awesome. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Jason, and uh, thanks, Dave. Awesome. So I've got, uh, went through the chat here and I've organized some questions as best I could. So next up, we got uh, Ashen with his question. So Ashen, go for it. Hey, everyone. Sorry, I let me scroll to my question because I forgot what I asked. All right, so Herpert, uh so yeah. So what, what are some trends that you've noticed on LinkedIn recently? Did you take a course on how to LinkedIn? I, I've noticed that people, you know, um, people will like their own posts to make it more visible to their um, connections or... Um, uh, just a certain like tips that I've picked up, but I don't know if there's like a course on how to LinkedIn that people are taking or like, you know, what's, what's going on. Is, is there something I'm missing out? That's a great question. So um, in terms of course on LinkedIn, I've signed up for a few and maybe I've watched a few of the videos and just didn't finish it. So uh, I'm notorious for like buying courses on how to LinkedIn and then just not figuring out how to link in. Um, so I guess I'm kind of, not the best person to ask for that. How about how about Susan? What do we need to do to link in on LinkedIn? So I have not done any courses and I've been pretty successful without needing to ever do a course. Um, I find that courses get you to not be yourself. So the most important thing is talk in your own tone of voice, you know, present in your own style how you would talk to your friends, your family, um, do those kinds of things. And and don't be afraid to test things and fail and learn. And, you know, it doesn't matter if a post bombs, you know, nobody will remember it tomorrow. Um, try loads of things, I you know, and, and be patient. So it's taken me a good year and a half to build up my network, um, my my brand, and, and even just figure out who I am and who I want to be on LinkedIn comment on lots of posts um i do like my own posts um which is just habit now i don't know whether it makes a difference or not but i do it um i don't use any automation i do everything myself um i i think especially if you the more followers you get i think you're putting yourself at more risk if you have any kind of automation at all um what else keep um have a mix of content as well. So it's really important to, you know, show your skills, show your knowledge, but show a bit of yourself as well. So show some of your personal sides, maybe some fun bits. Don't need to do lip syncs, but that's working for me. Somebody who I see is super positive on LinkedIn, like just everywhere is Giovanna. So Giovanna, what are your tips for LinkedIn? I can't find you on my screen. I hope you're still here. Thank you. I've got a page too. <laughs> I I think the most important things I I agree with everything that has said Suzanne. I love your style and your tone of voice, Suzanne. I'm your fan. And I think the most important thing is to be authentic because you have to show what you are. Because don't pretend to be another person. Just. Be yourself, and the most um, important thing in our community is uh, sharing and caring, and and I think uh, sharing knowledge and help uh, our community to grow is the most important um, uh, advice that uh, we can give to everyone. And all all the people who is today here, they know how to how to do that. And and I love when I I rate every 
post of everyone that is today here. It's amazing to see everyone here. It's like uh, everyone has his own style. And I think this is the, uh, the, the human touch that is behind every post that we, we publish. And uh, we need to maintain that. And I think that's why we have almost the same followers but they love to go to one post to another, maybe the same idea, but with a different perspective. And I think this is um, add value to the information that we gave and share. Thank you so much, Ivana. We actually have a LinkedIn, we have a couple of LinkedIn top voices and top voice alumni here. Um, So Greg, let's start with you. So Greg is a newly minted LinkedIn top voice in data science. So, we talked about this. So by, by the way, guys, I have an interview releasing with Greg um, early next year. We recorded maybe a couple of months ago. It's been a while, but uh, I remember during our conversation, we were having this, uh, this talk about how to maximize LinkedIn. So share some of your insights with us. Yeah. So uh, for me, it's kind of like, uh, it's like a kind of different steps, right? You, you pass the threshold of caring what uh, people think and don't take it personal. Right. And then uh, be in a mindset of, you know, sharing, like just just giving off new information that you learn out there. Uh, For me, uh, I see a lot of content that are super tailored to uh, a crowd with, you know, in-depth knowledge about a subject or skill like data science. For me, I get lost. Right. I can understand it. But from from a content creation standpoint, I kind of look at it a little bit. Uh, scope it out, scope out and look at it from a distance and understand why. So why do we have, for example, computer vision? What is it good for? Who are the use cases? What are the use cases? And then kind of pull stories that are related to uh, new discoveries. So, uh, but I cannot go to the specific about how an algorithm works. So I kind of take a different spin on it. So where I discover something new uh, that can connect with not only the specialist, the specialist in the data science, and also a business person who can also connect with my content. So in this case, I kind of, to me, I, I grow my, uh, uh, you know, uh, base. And also another thing too that's good is uh, create some sort of cadence. Uh, do you want to do it on a daily basis? It does work that people subconsciously expect uh, something new from you uh, from time to time. So it could be uh, from a time range that you choose, whether it's from between 9 and 12 p.m., uh, you want to post something out. And then the other one, too, is always be open to somebody else just slapping that post uh, uh, right back at your face with something that you didn't really know or uh, expect. So uh, create that, you know, uh, way of communicating and and getting the conversation going. One of the things that they told me when they nominated me was that uh, the conversation was good whenever I posted something. And to uh, favor that is I make sure to respond to everybody's answer. If you comment on my post, I'll make sure to respond to it. And most of the time, my learning growth happens when somebody shares something new with me on the comments. So uh, that's all I did. All right, man. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, for everybody just chilling, just a reminder that the uh, the chat is popping off. So definitely be active in the chat. It is going to be saved and published um, 
when this episode releases as a podcast episode. So keep an eye out for that link there. Um, so Karen, I see you got your hand up. I added you to the queue. So we'll get to your question, Ashton. I'll get to your second question later on in the, uh, in the program here. Next up, though, I've got Mark. Mark, you've got a question. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, I was just curious, um, you know, people's thought process of how they go through debugging. Um, for my current projects, um, you know, basically building out a whole NLP pipeline and coming across a lot of different bugs that I create. <laughs> and so been able to slog through them and, and get them done, but I definitely want to get more efficient at them. So I'm just curious other people's steps of like, what's their critical thinking process of like this, like when I get a bug, what's my first thing I do? Then I check this. I know it's gonna be different every single time, but I feel like it's almost an art. And so I'm, I'm curious how other people approach it. I'd actually love to hear from a, another fellow Data Science Dream Job student. I'm looking at you, Leona. Leona actually works at IBM, if I'm correct, and she does big things over there. So I'd love to hear how you uh, go through debugging code. Hi everyone, it's my first time here. And that's a really good question. I guess, uh, Debugging is really important and it can be challenging, but as you do more coding, you're kind of learning where to look, how to deal with it. And when I started uh, my career as data scientist, I was panicking when I was seeing errors or bugs. But as time passes, you kind of know where to look at, like the last line or with specific lines. If you're coding in Python, you should pay attention. And uh, just like anyone else, I keep Googling what certain error may mean or how other people specifically in Stack Overflow deal with it. So it's just like try and error sometimes. Sri Watson, how do you suggest doing some debugging? Okay. So uh, in, in, in the old application world, right, debugging was pretty easy because the tools and everything supported it. Uh, let me let me maybe go into one level kind of detail on it. Uh, the the main thing I noticed, like when we are working as a data scientist, debugging is the toughest part because you have an entire pipeline that you are built from data sourcing uh, till your uh, final deployment or insight generation, and the entire pipeline, even at a place it uh, fails, it's very uh, difficult to know where it is failing because we as data scientists sometimes complicate without writing a structural code. We just take a single notebook and push everything inside and think like, okay, we are done. Uh, the very first thing is modularize your code. Um, have like separate directory structure for your pre-processing step, for your uh, whatever visualization output step, the model step, and and the how you serve the model in the production or even like it cannot be model, how you serve the insight in the uh, production, right? And use the right libraries, uh, be it like your uh, testing libraries like PyTest or other things first before going there. Second is logging is very important. Where you see it's pretty critical, you need to make sure you log everything to a file or if you're on the cloud, you can use cloud services where all the logs are centralized. Now, writing 10 different logs for each and every process is going to be even more complicated. So your logging has to be thought of a horizontal capability in your entire process. So build your logging framework upfront. Uh, try to integrate the logging. Try to uh, try to also like store the model metadata and model uh, output. Right, that's where the ML ops comes into play. If you're talking about machine learning in general, so try to create um, uh, 
uh, more kind of uh, outputs because like your 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 kind of insight cycle is going to be multiple experiments each experiment will give you a separate results right or separate metric now if you keep on changing your pipeline and then you are generating inside you don't know which uh, which metrics you got for which uh, model code right so start logging each and every model metrics and this logging framework any company has to invest up front or we have to invest uh, in creating that so that tomorrow if you want to go like what i did two days back you feel that was the best uh, insight that you have got you can always go back and trace it and the logging will allow you to exactly go and get the error where it is happening and you can then uh, maybe in the code itself there are way today to search a stack overflow and print the results you can do that or you can do a manual search so that's what typically we do for logging and everything carlos is it different with r when it comes to debugging like does does the principles change depending on on programming language um so let's hear from carlos about debugging then after carlos is here from yeah uh, i think everything shrivastam said is exactly right i would just throw in that r has a pins package that lets you uh save the status of various things i think in python metaflow does a bunch of stuff for that too um but i was just putting in the chat too at our studio 2020 uh, Jenny Bryan had a whole workshop on debugging. I went to all three days. There was also a keynote speech about debugging. Highly recommend that I linked it in the chat. Uh, but also just the number one way to debug is to not make bugs. And the way to do that is to really have in your head what the desired output is before you throw your inputs into a function. I see a lot of programmers are like, yeah, you know, I took this code off the internet and it worked for that guy and it merged his data frames, but it didn't work for me. Why is it broken? And of course, you know, the proper things to do are Make a reprex, you'll solve a manual reprex. Uh, use traceback, use browser, all that stuff. But really, like, just have your inputs and outputs in your head as you code so that you're not debugging, you know, lose less. I said that earlier today, but try to get out of the situations where you're accidentally causing bugs and do that if you think about what your inputs and outputs are. Excellent points. I think uh, Metaflow is an awesome package. I actually just recently found out about that. Developed by Netflix. Uh, it's open source, completely open source. I plan on experimenting with this um, in the next coming weeks. This is actually a really great topic that I'd love to hear from more people on. I think we could even get into some philosophy of, of debugging. Um, so let's let's ask a couple more people um, what they think. I'd love to hear from uh, Monica about debugging. After Monica, let's go to George. Hey, everyone. I came with my bells on. <laughs> um, I just have two uh, general uh, things that I wanted to share um, when handling errors. So what I like to do when I'm learning something new is kind of fail on purpose. So I just break it, see what error pops out. And then if you do that enough times, then when something comes around again, you would, you would notice that, oh, this has happened to me before. I know how to fix this. And then another one being uh, be very active on sites such as Stack Overflow. Um, you, use, you probably use that to, to research your own errors, but really get into like answering other people's questions. I think that really helps you solidify what's going on in the back end as well. George? There's one thing I do want to mention. Great answers, by the way. I've started my data career as a software developer, and I think there's one discommonality between software developers and data scientists, and it's the fact that we, we tend to go at tackling the problem solo. And that's not a bad thing necessarily, but it's sometimes valuable to try and ask help. Try and ask your colleague or somebody else that um, you know might not know 
the issue at heart as well as you do, but just getting that fresh pair of eyes definitely helps. And I, you know, I know if I'm asked to do debugging for somebody else, I'm not always happy, but sometimes it's, it's nice to tackle that challenge as well and, and see what you can find. And you know what, it can save you a few hours at, uh, instead of digging it yourself and finding out where, where the bug is. Thank you very much for that. Awesome, awesome tips and advice um, on debugging. Uh, I just add one more thing to debugging. Oh, definitely go for it. Yeah, one of the one of the things I've noticed when I debug uh, my code is, um, I say ninety percent of the time it's something really stupid, like a misplaced comma or a misspelled word or something like that. So I would say if you find yourself spending more than like thirty minutes trying to solve a problem, there's a very good chance it's something that you missed. And it's usually something really stupid um, and simple. So maybe check the simple stuff first and that might save you some time. Awesome. So um, I guess in, to, to also address that issue is having good IDE. Um, I, I use VS Code. Whatever you guys use, type it out in the chat. I'd love to hear and see what it is that you guys use. So definitely type that out. Um, so next I have in the queue, Florin. And then after Florin, I've got um, Jennifer who wants to spark off a Python versus R debate. Ooh, should be a good one. And then after Jennifer, we got Akshay. So Florin, are you still here? Uh, yes. Awesome. Go for it. So my question was regarding uh, scraping large data sets. So uh, I'm planning to kind of scrape the whole world web in no sense. And uh, for different websites, like on Goodreads, you can find what people read on other websites. You can find where they travel and other things like that and do like uh, talent-based discovery or hobby-based discovery. And I'm curious if people worked on this and also like, I know legally is sometimes somehow complicated, but also I don't know what the challenges are or how do people see it? So you're asking us to give you advice on how to scrape personally identifiable information on the web. Is that, did I hear that right? So I know how to do it like technologically and having the database and processing the data more uh, and also maybe if there are other projects that are doing this in different universities so i don't know yeah so, you're saying that as if it's a bad thing but there's an entire industry called open source that doesn't mean our open source that's focused on scraping everything on reddit everything on twitter everything on instagram everything on like if it's public a government that you don't like is recording it so uh, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, just to for a little, like one of the things that I'm doing, I'm I'm mostly scraping like the users, not exactly not that much the post because this also is too much capacity for me to handle. So I prefer to have like metadata about the user, like the preferences, not anything like that. I didn't get that much all of the post because I don't have that much memory. Um, anybody want to take a stab at that? Sorry, guys. So I guess one question I, I would ask is: so is this for like research purposes or is this for commercial use? I like data currently. So for me, it's like playing with the data and seeing, I, I don't know how I could monetize this. Probably there, there could be different ways, but it's mostly for me because I, I like what to see, I don't know what would be the results. Got it. Um, so, 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 so in general, and I don't want to like make this a blanket rule. Everyone, please feel free to like argue with me on this because I'm sure this is wrong. But like if you're like an individual and you're doing it for like research or, or like you know, um, toy data set purposes, typically they won't go after you for that. Um, some websites, if they do have like, uh, you know, anti kind of scraper sort of initiatives going, it will be a little bit harder to do that. If you are doing it for like, eventually if you want to monetize or commercialize it, um, that's where you could kind of get into trouble potentially. Um, it, it, well, it depends, right? But in general, it's just like, don't do it. Um, I just think it's, it's safe to say, don't do it. 
Um, secondly, like also from, I guess like a lot of places they offer APIs. That's honestly like the better way to go about is if you can get access to like legitimate API, uh, I would just go do that. Um, and then like the other thing I would consider is that like, if you really want to, you can you can look at scraping services. I've already pre-scraped it. It's one of these things where it's like figuring out like, are you are you doing it because you're just like interested in like learning how to scrape? Um, that can be very, very useful. Or are you trying to like do a project out of it? Or are you trying to spin a product or a service? If you're trying to do product or service, just don't do it. Um, if you're doing it for just like an individual project research purpose, um, you probably don't need a whole lot of data just to go like, oh, I can write like, you know, like a beautiful soup parser or, you know, I can do like little, you know, crawling spider. So, you know, I would just say like, consider that. Um, Cause like, even though, so LinkedIn recently, like they had some rulings, right. About like how you could approach their scraping. Um, but it's, it's still tricky because like, if you, for example, take a project that you eventually want to monetize um, in turn, like if it's someone else's intellectual property, then that will get you into trouble like long-term. So I would just say like, you know, consider some of those questions, you know, are you doing it for an individual purpose? If you do eventually want to monetize it, you know, just don't do it. Um, you know, like what, what do you really need it for? And everyone else can kind of, I, I think there's a lot of people here who are experts who can kind of like speak to that a little bit more. Yeah, this is just a topic. I'm just going to move right past. Uh, you can, can I give you a white hat hacker answer though? Yeah, you, you could do that um, in the chat. So, uh, <laughs> There's resources uh, posting in the chat, web scraping, whatever. That's that we're just gonna move past that. Uh, next up is Jennifer Narden. You have a question. So I don't intend to start war here, but um, I like learning about data. I'm very much on the business end of a, of data pipelines, but I've got a lot of databases to get to. I need to start merging some code. Over vacation, I want to either deep dive into Python or R. Which one should I deep dive into? You can give me one reason why and one reason why I should not do the other one. Go. I, I would Wait, recommend one or the other of them. So, what, Tom? <laughs> I said I would recommend one of those, yes. Oh, good, excellent, <laughs> on the right yeah. track. <laughs> one of those is a good place to start. Uh, Vin? with their contrarian views, let's hear it, man. Python R? Java. The actual correct answer, funny enough. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. Been there and done that. No, I want something new. Julia. <laughs> Julia, yeah. I, I, I always forget the answer to this, but the way I remember it is P, Python's for products and R's for research. That helps me remember because I forget. I mean, Ben's picking up TensorFlow over Christmas break, so it's awesome. I'm in your shoes. I would just, I would just flip a coin, right? Heads are tails Python. I mean, it's just really? that. The holy wars are, are kind of silly, in my opinion. I mean, like I'm more of a Python guy, and like we're getting PyCon like in my city in 2022, so. You know, kind of have a vested interest in Python. That said, R is great too. Um, I think the, the language words are just like utterly stupid. That's why I just flip the coin. You can't go wrong either way. Yeah. So, so a real, a, a real quick it. important yeah. fact, just a real quick one. For those of you Python people that have grown privately um, jealous of R Shiny, you can pull it into Python now. We also have Dash and Streamlit, which is like really nice. Oh. I, I will admit, R Shiny has made me jealous for many years. So, 
Jennifer, I'd say this. I'd give an unbiased answer, and this is how it's going to go. So take a look at, you know, maybe, I don't know if it is for your own just uh, personal development that you're trying to, to code, but take a look at people in your organization that you're close with around you and see what they know, right? Because if you're in an organization and that organization highly favors the use of R, that means you'll have a lot of people that you can tap into and be like, hey, I'm stuck on this thing rather than having to post it on Stack Overflow and you know, search hours and hours. You just go to somebody be like, hey, need some help, help me out. So I'd say that just take a look at who, people around you, people that you know you can reach out to who know some programming language and just see what the consensus is yeah. amongst them. It and, is pretty balanced. And yeah. that's why I'm like, well, I got to pick one. I only have a couple weeks. Yeah. yeah, and I think that kind of points to the like R versus Python being sort of like one of those academic debates, because like at the company I was at, which wasn't big, but, you know, it's like around a couple of thousand people for our data science team of like 30 or 40 individuals, you know, and we're serving different teams. It really was split 50-50. And like all the managers had to know like R and Python, right? Because sometimes we would get code from like a different part of the business and when the, and then we would need to adapt it. And someone's like, oh, like, you know, I can't do this. So the manager or the team lead is still usually on point to like help, um, like mentor and guide that sort of translation. I know for me, I started learning R in, like academia went went out and then learned Python. But like, I think at some companies I still had to do both, right? I had to like read and adapt code and then understand if issues came up, like what was going on. So if you just pick one um, and rely on the people around you, uh, you know, it's, you can't really go wrong. Cause I think honestly, there's so many tools and like libraries in both languages that you'll be, you'll sitting, you'll be sitting pretty on either one. Okay. So we're going to do this. Um, I'm going to actually just fire up a poll and everybody can vote and, and you can pick whoever the winner is. And uh, we'll just go on with the, uh, the next question that we have in line is from Akshay. Um, so everybody, I'm going to set up a poll real quick and we're going to decide Jennifer's fate. Um, so in the meantime, Akshay, go for it. What's your question? Is Akshay still here? Akshay might have left. I think Akshay said he had, uh, I think, I think he had to leave. Okay. Um, I just want to take a minute to recognize some of the folks who have jumped in just because I finally got a chance to go to page two here. I just realized Ben Taylor is here. Ben, what's up? We got Sarah. Sarah, welcome back. Glad to have you here. Cameron's also here, uh, keeping up for an episode that I have with Cameron. We got Ray in the house. We got David Tello. Um, beautiful, wonderful, amazing people. Thank you so much for being here. So let's go to Karin's question next. Are you still here, Karin? Has Karin left? I, I think you might have left. left actually. All yeah. right. So Ashen, what is your second question? I really like this question and uh, I'd love to hear from uh, everybody here on this as well. Yeah. Hi. Second time. So what are your expectations from someone in a junior role? I'm currently a um, junior data developer. Um, so I'm, I feel like I'm kind of all over the place as far as learning goes. Um, like I'm handling like, you know, a couple different tools at the same time. Um, so are you expecting me to like know it all or just like, you know, document stuff. So yeah, what are your expectations from someone in junior role? So Sarah, I'd love to, I'd love to start off hearing from, from you. Uh, and then after Sarah, we'll go to uh, Sri Watson and Vin, and then um, we'll hear from Monica and Makiko. We'll hear from everyone because this is a really, really important question. Um, go for it, Sarah. Awesome. Yeah, I like this question. Um, I guess the way I would guide someone who is junior is to 
not get super overwhelmed um, to test out different things, but find out where your strengths are. I think when I had first started, it's really, really easy to just see the sea of everything you don't know and feel like the expectations of you are extremely high and uh, feel kind of down on yourself that <laughs> you, you can't meet everyone's expectations. And so um, I think that also coming from above, we should be a little bit more level set on what our expectations are of junior folks and that it is so widespread and you're not going to find a data unicorn. Um, so I would lean into projects that you find very interesting and that you can see is very much um, the industry that you like very much related to the industry that you want to stick to and focus on developing the skill sets for those. Um, I know we harp on, on communication skills. I think documentation is extremely important and then focusing on industry-specific skill sets that can help you along the way. So that would be kind of how I would guide you there. Sri Watson, what, what do you look for? Yeah, so so if, if you're specifically looking for a skill, I would say the very first and important skill that is required is SQL. Because most of the time as a junior, you're coming into a project, you will be given data to analysis and off 90% of the analysis can be done with SQL, right? Like all the Python libraries are good to visualize and show you the outputs, right? But SQL does all the job. So that's where you'll be spending most of your uh, time, right? So that's a good start. You need to go advanced into SQL, I would say, right? Like everybody can write all the uh, update, select and all. Uh, but when you're doing analysis, you may need some of the analytical functions of SQL, uh, and all the CT expressions and everything. So go in detail with that. That's a good start. And as you get into the project, right, um, you can you can learn. Uh, maybe if you know Python, you can go into detail of it, and you can learn on the job. But that's what I would see. But the industry is completely uh, polluted with all the jargons, and they throw everything at uh, juniors. That that's kind of unfortunate. But I would say like SQL is a good start. Monica, what do you look for in a junior data scientist? Yeah, so aside from any of the technical skills and what they don't usually put on job descriptions are those soft skills, mainly being uh, curiosity. So the main point of your job as a data analyst or a data scientist really is to solve problems. So if you're curious to understand what that problem means and what you need to do to solve that problem and continuously learning on those type of skills. That's that's what I lean towards because you can always improve your SQL or Python or what have you, those those skills along your journey. Then what do you look for? I think, you know, everybody's brought up most of the, the main points, the soft skills, curiosity. There's usually one or two technical skills that are really important based on the business. I mean, SQL is obviously huge, but Every once in a while, you'll run into a junior level position where you might need something else as well. But what I'm going to do is partner you up with a technical lead. And I'm going to partner you up with somebody who can do mentorship from a career perspective. And those are the two things, not so much that I'm looking for, but I want you to be able to develop under mentorship and under technical guidance. I want you to, I want to see that you're progressing quickly and learning from someone who's essentially on the same project and handing out smaller tasks to you and frequently checking in with you. I think there's got to be some sort of a framework and, you know, especially a, a, 
I don't know, safety net's a good way to say it, so that you never get too far out on your own. And I want, like I said, from my perspective, that's what you can expect from me, but then from expectations of you is the rapid learning. I want to know that I've hired somebody who learns quickly and someone who's willing to try new tasks. Actually, I'd love to hear from from uh, Leona as well. What do you look for in a junior data scientist? Um, maybe specifically at, at your organization, what kind of candidates they look for? So soft skills, as uh, pretty much a lot of people mentioned, are is really important. And we're looking for people who are curious, ask right questions, because a lot of things can be new when you just start your role. So asking a lot of questions and clarifying things is really important. And the other thing is networking with others, talking to other junior data scientists or senior ones is another thing which we really, really value. Ben, what do you think? Ben, are you muted? Uh, Yeah, sorry, guys. I'll engage in a minute, so pass me on this one. Yeah, definitely. Um, So let's hear from, uh, let's hear from, 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 I don't know who wants to go, man. There's so many people I would love to hear from. Uh, um, so, Amaya, do you have an answer to this question or do you have a question? Because I have you in line at number four from now. So if you have a question, just, just sit tight. Um, Mikiko, what do you look for in a uh, junior data scientist? And then Cam yeah, after this. Yeah, I will caveat that I think it... it I will caveat that there are two factors that kind of um, impact the implementation, right, of what is expected of a junior data scientist. One is the company size. So if you are in an early stage startup, um, to be so the mindset, right, typically is that if you're really sort of early stage or in a small business, it's like, we might not be able to pay you a whole lot, um, but we'll try to treat you with respect, but we'll also give you a lot of responsibility and learning is going to be really fast. So I think there it's like personality and like grit and creativity is like super important. Um, a lot more important than um, having advanced technical skills. There is still like the bare minimum of technical skills, right? So that's like SQL, um, some kind of scripting language, just because once again, there's a lot of uh, additional analysis that you might need to do in visualization, but the personality, the grit, the creativity, um, the being able to, you know, if to go work on a problem, uh, you know, search Google for issues and bugs as they come up, but then coming back to like the team lead or to the manager, if you run into issues, um, so that's like for an early stage for a more uh, established company, you know, you might be not wearing multiple hats. You might be wearing kind of like one hat. And so if you're sort of the essential focus of your work, for example, is strategy analytics, um, the expectation there is not so much technical, but it's a, you know, first off, you can ask really good questions. Um, Secondly, you can kind of uh, scope and do some kind of like time project management. Uh, But, you know, being willing to ask for help if you run into scope issues, right? if you are, say, for example, the product of your work is more engineering focused, um, then I think like having the technical skills, yes. Um, maybe you might not be as up to date on best practices. Um, maybe you might not be up to date on like Scrum or Agile or anything else. But those are some things that we can kind of like teach you and show you. And if you're doing research, um, once again, it still goes back to the like, you don't just need to have advanced knowledge. You just need to have just enough to be able to do the work, um, but still come into it with 
that sort of uh, being able to ask questions, being able to talk to people, not isolating your business partners, um, all that good stuff. Um, the real, the technical bullet points honestly are like SQL, some kind of scripting language, and then some way of documenting your work and communicating it. And it could be visual, like a BI tool. It could also be some kind of like document management tool. I mean, that's pretty much, that's pretty much what I look for. So. Yeah. Yes. I definitely think there's something to be said about having a collaborative mindset and approach when you're dealing with, with business stakeholders. And that's definitely something I, I would look for in a junior data scientist, given that they oftentimes are having to translate a lot of the heavy business problems to a technical solution. Um, so definitely that is something I would look for, as well as the ability to communicate with data very soundly. Um, so as someone who's very analytical, who knows how to utilize uh, different types of data visualizations or setting up dashboards in such a way that it helps translate recommendations very soundly so that your stakeholders are not confused of what to do with the information that's being said. Um, I definitely think that's a, a great way to help um, the teams who are more advanced be able to know where they should spend their efforts. Um, so I definitely think that's a good roadmap to helping to drive someone's career as well. So that's something I definitely look for uh, more on a soft side um, as, as someone who's interested in, in data science. It's wonderful, man. So much great advice, so many great tips. Ashton, I hope you're taking notes. Even if you weren't, I transcribed this, so it'll be all there for you. Next up, um, you. first of all, cheers, everybody. Hope everybody has their holiday beverage. I've got a cranberry stout, getting really festive with it. Um, so uh, thank you guys so much for, for hanging out. Next question we got up is from Lolita. Are you still here? Um, then after Lolita, we'll do Eric, then Greg, then Amaya. Then I'll circle back and see if Akshay and Karan are still here. Uh, but next up, Lolita, you still here? Hi. Hi. Yeah, I'm here. So it's my first meeting and I'm a, like, I will introduce myself. I'm a graduate student at University of Minnesota and uh, I'm like uh, applying for full-time opportunities uh, uh, in data science and machine learning roles. But uh, I have had a hard luck so far. Like I'm not even getting interview calls from the company. And when I apply on LinkedIn, uh, I look, uh, I go through the job description and I feel like this is the right uh, role for me. But even then, I uh, don't. Uh, I don't hear anything from the recruiters or from the company. So, what advice would you have for a person who is just? Um, like want to enter in this data science community. Like I have done academic projects and I have a professional experience of more than three years. And I'm also doing internship with a, a company over here in the USA. So I think I have a, a pretty good background, but still I'm not getting anything so far in the like in this field. Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. So I'll, I'll chime in with a couple of bits of advice and I'd love to hear from uh, Sarah, then Makiko, then Ben. Um, I would say, I would say this, I would say first, make sure that when you apply for a job that you don't kind of just like apply for the job and just pray that they're going to call you back. There's still work to be done after you hit the apply button. And part of that work is to let people in the company know that you've applied for the job, whether that's going to LinkedIn and trying to find somebody that's a technical recruiter to then shoot them a message and say, Hey, love what you're doing with your company. think the work you guys do is amazing. I'm so happy to talk about how I could help you contribute 
positively in this role. Um, I'm just like making stuff up off the top of my head, but you got to get the picture. You want to, to make sure you're actively letting people know that you've applied for the role. Now, if you can't find anybody on LinkedIn, that's a technical recruiter, then maybe try to message a um, data scientist and just let them know that, that you've applied for the role and, and, that's about it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask for like a, a recommendation or, or anything like that. Um, next bit of advice I would say is just be persistent. It's a numbers game. Any application that you submit, you need to assign a prior probability to you even getting that job at like less than 1% because you're one of maybe a hundred thousand applicants maybe. Um, so just keep opportunities in your pipeline by just applying, 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 and then following up and following up. Um, so let's hear from uh, Sarah Makiko and then Ben. Okay. I guess um, the first thing I would say here is that um, I had done a talk on like networking, which, you know, forging relationships in the community is extremely important. The timing though is also important when you create those relationships. So um, I did a talk uh, uh, during Kate's uh data science conference um, that talked about the importance of the of those relationships and when they when you can actually put them into play and so you're you're currently in the stage where you're looking for a job on the job hunt um, if there are connections that you've already forged with people who can help you in this stage I would leverage those in the case that you don't have that um, I would say creating um, I don't want to say like noise or chatter or your own personal brand within this community can also be helpful for people to see your profile. Since I started, I think my first job was the only one that I actually applied for. Since then, I've been approached by recruiters, which means that I'm now on their radar and uh, many of us who are active on LinkedIn, you know, engaging with the community putting your name out there, um, having uh, a personal profile that people can look at what you've created and what you've generated and, and be interested in having you on board. Um, to what Harpreet had said, I think also it plays into, um, what did you mention that I liked? Oh, you said something really good. <laughs> now I'm forgetting. Um, but yeah, just forging those relationships, talking to people within the company, um, and shoot, if I remember it, I'll <laughs> yeah. I'll come back. Definitely. Uh, so let's hear from Mikiko and then Ben, um, and then after that, let's hear from um, Tom. Yeah. So um, like Carlos and Matt have kind of posted in uh, chat, right? It's part of it is about your like sales pitch. Uh, so for context, right? For for my particular background, like I only have a bachelor's in like anthropology and economics. I did like a boot camp at Springboard, but for the most part, like I I think by a law of measures would be considered very like uncompetitive or unhirable for data science gigs. Um, but, you know, for me personally, like the way I was able to leverage it was first off, I had sort of domain expertise and specifically in sales, marketing, revenue operations. Um, but also I really, working with sales teams a lot, I learned just really how to develop my pitch. What is your unique value proposition? You know, and it can't, like I hate to say this, it cannot be, you have a PhD in X, you have a master's in Y, you know, you did your undergrad in Z, um, you, uh, it, depending on what kind of, you're going for a research role um, and you have like published papers and all that, like for Google Brain or Facebook research, then that's, that would work for them. But for example, if you're applying like data scientist roles that are closer to strategy, 
or like senior analyst roles, um, they actually don't care as much about your education. They tend to care more about your problem solving abilities and how you can demonstrate that you push the needle. And so they care about, you know, if you've worked with product data, if you've worked with sales marketing companies. So one thing, uh, you know, I would say is that first off, uh, really kind of understand the kind of roles you're going for, right? Um, essentially, there's three sort of personas within the data science world. It's you're either doing engineering work, either on like models or data pipelines, you're doing some kind of research work, or you're doing some kind of strategy and analytics, um, you know, and they have their kind of things that they like to see. So I would first say like, you know, figure out which of those roles you kind of want to go for. So definitely don't spray and pray. Um, then secondly, develop your pitch such that you are focusing on your unique contribution or what you could bring to that role. Um, you know, uh, Harpreet and a couple of the men other mentors in data science training job like to talk about your superpower. Your superpower, it doesn't have to be technical. Um, sometimes it can be, for example, you're a really great facilitator between, you know, totally different teams. Uh, that was my pitch was that I understand sales and marketing for SaaS companies and early stage startups and both engineers and sales teams like to have me in the room which apparently is, is rare enough um, that that sort of, you know, perk people's ears up. So I would say focus on those two, two things. One is understanding the, or three, one is understanding the uh, roles and work that's available. Um, the second part is understanding which of those roles and what, what type of work you would like to be doing. Um, and then the thirdly is understanding what are sort of your unique value propositions that you can bring when you are tailoring your resume um, and your CV. And this is where getting uh, other eyes to look at your resume, like for example, Carlos has made that offer, um, can really help with like bringing that out. Ben, I'd love to hear your perspective on the second part of her question, which was essentially she looks at these job descriptions and she's just overwhelmed by the requirements. What are your thoughts on that? And also, can we please hear the story behind the hashtag unrecruitable? Yeah, hopefully this isn't too unflattering. So um, pretty cool. people, I'm at Brighton, Utah. Uh, How's the um, snow right now? It's good. Like it's, nice. they got the powder. It'll be good. So Ben's um, about 20 minutes from where I live. <laughs> yeah. um, so people don't know right, how to write job descriptions. And so the joke, the joke that people throw out there is, oh, I want 20 years of deep learning experience or like something that's stupid just doesn't exist or or you'll actually see requirements where it's impossible to fill that need. So imagine like I want an, an R expert and a Python expert. That's super rare. If I add the big data stack there, that's even more rare. So don't think too much into uh, descriptions. I really like what people have been saying about talking about your brand. So professors don't know anything about, they really don't know that much about getting you a job. They know how to teach you, but they don't know how to get you a job. And they don't understand branding. So I tell people, go give a presentation. Go give a presentation at a meetup. Um, help build your brand, get yourself out of your comfort zone. The other thing I wanted to say is if you're normal, I'm so motivated to not hire you that I want my team to suffer. And if you're, if you have curiosity or passion, you have curiosity, that's great. But if you have passion, that's huge. So, so get that passion and then go present, show people you have it. And then the unrecruitable story, I was just sick of getting hit up with recruiter spam, which everyone on this call has been hit up with recruiter spam where they want me to be a Java developer or something that you know, I'd rather just see what's next after this life than being a Java developer. Um, so I, I put that up there thinking it would help. It didn't help. It's all in there. Get on the lift. The comments are blowing up, but just for the record, Ben's answering this while on a ski slope. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's that. 
awesome tips and awesome places. I, I want to be answering this while I'm in the air. I'll be like, <laughs> Python, something stupid. Uh, Jennifer, so far, Python is in the lead, 33 to 6. There is still time to vote if you haven't already. Um, all right, so who else wants to share some insight onto this? Um, so uh, the issue here is she's got a couple issues. She's applying to to, to companies and she's not hearing back and she's getting kind of intimidated by these job postings. Uh, Monica, what do you think? Sorry, I was typing in the comments. What is the question? So Lolita <laughs> is, uh, she's been applying for roles and just not hearing back, but she feels like she, she's got a solid background for the roles. Like there seems to be a match between the work she's done in grad school and the job that she's applying for, but she's not hearing back. And there's also when she's uh, going to go apply for jobs, she sees like the, um, the, the, the description and it's just like, what the hell, man, this is insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't have much to add. Everyone's uh, brought really good things to the table as far as reaching out to potential recruiters on LinkedIn. If you see somebody that can help you out or even if they're not a recruiter on LinkedIn, if they just work in a department that's related to where you had applied, you can ask them maybe if they know a specific recruiter and kind of just weave your way through to find the correct content. Um, just all about networking, reaching out. Don't be, don't be shy about it. Um, the worst thing that they can do is say no. So that, that's what I would add. So I, I think somebody who would have some valuable insight here is John Sebastian, because we answer questions like this multiple times a week at Data Science Dream Job. So this is um, something that I know you have an answer for. So go for it, John. Right. So, I mean, there was like a lot of great answers before me, but if I could add just one thing, just remember that this is just basic human psychology. So you're trying to develop a relationship with someone and you're trying to sell yourself to someone so that they will consider you for a position. So if you're just like on LinkedIn and you're sending your resume and you're just, you know, sending messages to recruiters saying, hey, um, you know, pick me. Well, that, that might be good, actually, because, you know, if you apply for a position and there's like 100 candidates, then you're no longer just a piece of paper. You're suddenly you're someone, you're an individual who's connecting with someone else. And actually, that could help you out uh, just being picked out of the bunch. Might, you might not get hired, but at least you will be considered or you could be considered because it's all about maximizing your chances of being picked. So that's one thing. Now, when it comes down to creating, to um, developing your networks, I mean, I agree with everything that has been said so far. The only thing that I would add is, and, you know, we hear this all the time, uh, people saying, oh, you know, I sent this email to, uh, to that person and they didn't get back to me. Well, okay, but what did you do? So basically, don't ask for favors unless you know you're you have something to give them and if you don't have anything to give them which is probably you, you know what's what will happen and, and it's totally fine start developing a relationship and the way to do that is to it's to uh, i would say bring value to the other person so if you're let's just say i want to connect with you know let's just say i don't know heartbreed and i want to connect with heartbreed on linkedin what i would do is i would go on his profile see see you know his connection uh, see articles that you have talked about, uh, 
you know, I can figure out that he's actually a host of a, of a podcast. So first things first, you know, just send a message saying, hey, you know, I, I just saw that, you know, you're hosting um, a podcast. This is awesome. Uh, it looks very interesting. And that's it. Don't ask for anything. Just create that relationship. And then maybe a week later, come again, uh, bring something else. And then, you know, start trying to develop some sort of a, of a connection in which you can actually start to exchange with that person. And then maybe you can bring up some, some concerns, say, hey, you know, I've been looking at this position in your company. Would you be able to, to help me out? Or can I do, uh, or how can I, you know, do something to, to, uh, to, to, to show that I would be a good candidate. Um, so yeah, so this is probably what I would recommend. Just, you know, just remember that you are like in a relationship with someone and just remember that you're connecting with another human being. I'd like to add something real quick. Yeah, definitely go for it. So if, if you're looking for a data science uh, job and you're not getting anything, maybe um, you want to switch or change the uh, strategy a little bit. Um, and maybe you want to focus on these companies where, uh, in their culture, they uh, something like Amazon, for example, they really encourage people to move to different positions. So maybe what you want to start with is a data analyst position, and then you move after. Because what the IR usually looks at is how long does it take me to train that person to gain some some knowledge uh, in, in the area that I'm hiring that I need help with. So if they feel like that training time is long, you're, you're not going to hear anything back. But also it's all about, you know, like everybody else says, it's about selling yourself, right? What, what can you show for yourself in terms of domain knowledge and how can you back that up with, with sound data to showcase where you know what you're talking about, you solve this issue already and things like that. And, and you know, uh, to young ones, Time is your best asset right now. So there's there's nothing that tells you in the book that you have to start as a data, data scientist. Like Amazon wants a data scientist who's done so many things that maybe it's good for you to start somewhere else and then work your way into it. And now somebody will look at you as someone who already has, um, you know, uh, um, a lot of the, <laughs> Eric, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm young too, Eric, no problem. Um, so, so they would look at you as someone who already knows uh, a little bit about the company and that who can be trained a little bit faster and get up to speed uh, faster. So look at different strategies. So don't just look at, I want to be a data scientist and, 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 and get locked on it. Thank you very much, Greg. So, uh, Last person to hear from on this question is Leona, because I know you kind of went through a similar journey as Lolita has gone through here. Uh, what tips can you share with her? And then after this, we'll get to Eric's question, then Greg's question, then Amaya's question, and then Saurabh, I think you had another question. Um, but yeah, Leona. So Lolita, uh, I was in the same position that you are right now, almost two years ago. It was really hard for me to get any interviews. I was applying on LinkedIn, trying to talk to people on LinkedIn. But uh, I found this conference, uh, which was related to my field plus data science. My field is economics. And I just put my resume there. There was supposed to be a job fair in that conference. And I got some interviews there. And I got my offer from IBM from there. So the point is, if you can find any conferences, either your advisor refer or you yourself in Twitter, on LinkedIn, anywhere you can find, just try to attend. 
It might be a little, a little bit challenging with pandemic, not talking to people directly if versus when you could go to conferences, but still consider that I got my job that way. So Lolita, lots of great advice there. Um, don't worry, this session has been recorded. There'll be transcripts and you will definitely have access to these answers. Hopefully that helped you out and um, good luck in your job search. Next question, let's go to Eric and then just preemptively for the answers for Eric's question, I'll go to Dave and Cam. Okay, cool. So I have one, I wanted to throw out one quick thing to Lalita. As a fellow job searcher, here's something that's worked for me. So this is, and I didn't make this up, this came from Reno Perry, who's way smarter than I am. So go to LinkedIn, go to the search bar, just press enter. You don't even have to search a word and then go to content and then post it in the past 24 hours or past week, and then go to companies that people work for and type in the name of the company you want to work for and see what people have posted. And I have gotten two interviews from people posting, hey, we're hiring, DM me. And so I send them a message. I'm like, hey, saw this job. Look, I, you know, and, and I post on LinkedIn. So if they want to look at my profile, they can see that I'm there. I'm active. I'm a real person, you know, and I've had I've had two interviews from it. And so like it works So try it. And then you're actually talking to the people that you want to talk to. And yeah. So anyway, there's that. So um, my question is I had uh, someone reached out to me on LinkedIn um, to talk about a project. And so basically, so now I have an, an unlabeled product data set. I wrote all this down so I can remember it. So I have an unlabeled uh, data set uh, with 36 variables that seem to show correlation into kind of six major categories. Um, I want to use the data to identify similarities and hopefully create clusters or profiles of those groups. Some kind of, I want to label this unlabeled data basically, right? Um, so I use latent factor analysis with Verimax rotation to create six factors for kind of categorizing the data. They didn't come labeled as being six categories, but the rotation works. So two quick questions. One, does it make sense to cluster on the scores of each observation for those factors? I think it makes sense, but I just want to double check. And then my second question is, can I use, using this model now, I guess that exists, can I use that somehow to score validation, or not score, but like I guess, can I use that on validation data to get scores and assign a cluster or group to those new observations like on that? Does that, does that make sense? Like I'm trying to figure out if I can use that predictively. So the short answer is yes. Um, the long answer is it depends because there's no such thing as the free lunch, right? Sure. It might work and it might not. So what I would recommend doing is if you are interested in using clustering to create labels and then use the labels with the original data, then create like a classification model mm. is what I'm hearing, right? Cause you got six distinct labels. You can certainly do that. Um, and what I would do is I would incorporate as many additional features back in when you train the model that you're trying to do that, as you can, um, and then try and use a more sophisticated algorithm that has nonlinear boundaries, ideally. Cause what I found typically is when I try, tried to do this in the past, I, tend to find things like random forests or boosted decision trees tend to work better because they can form um, arbitrarily complex um, decision boundaries based on the nature of the algorithm. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would do. And then of course, the problem is going to be is once you train it, um, it's hard to verify what your generalization error is going to be really. So always keep that in the back of your mind that yes, you can do it and it will work sometimes and sometimes it won't. And generally speaking, what you want to do is you want to um, factor in as many 
inputs to training the classification model as you can. So what I've done in the past, I've, I've actually used multiple clustering algorithms and then use, use the, for example, then use create different models for each one of the clustering algorithms and then see if I could use them as an ensemble together to then create the final predictions for the final data set. Cool. Okay. That's super helpful. Thank you. So would um, anybody else like to chime in Cam or Vin on that one? Um, Cam, if you want to go, go for it, Vin. Um, well, just stepping here, a lot of what I was thinking is actually along the lines of what Dave was mentioning, um, just stress testing different types of um, cluster analyses to see what works. Like past, I've had to um, cluster different types of personas and having to um, stress test, you know, K-means versus K-medoids or K-modes or sharplings, try to see which one is the best out of those lots and then really going from there. Um, but yeah, I, I agree completely with what Dave was just mentioning. I think that's the, the, the sound approach here. Then any tips? I caught the end of that co- that question, so I'm sorry I didn't, I didn't get the whole thing. So you have to skip me on this one. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. Um, Eric, do you feel like your question was answered satisfactorily? Yeah, that was definitely helpful. I hadn't really, <clears throat> I hadn't really considered taking the cluster def- definitions and then backing that back out to just using as you know all of the factor or sorry all of the variables instead of just the factors so that'll definitely be my next step right on man uh so everybody thank you so much for for hanging out sticking with me while i get through these questions um sorry if i have not called on anybody in a while your input is always welcome feel free to just unmute yourself and, and jump in on any answer at any point um next up is greg's question greg you're going to stop us again. Thanks, uh, uh, Harpy. So, no, no, not trying to stop. But uh, so at some point in my career, I would like to have um, run a company, uh, create a startup. And um, I have a short term plan in the long term. So short term is written in the next five, long term 10 plus. And I've been reading about uh, federated learning. Um, one of the things that I want to attack is um, distribution. We don't have shortage of uh, resources like food. We have a problem with distribution. Does anybody know a little bit about federated learning? And if it's one of those things where the big data gobblers are only the winners or can a startup bank on this? So I know something like Google started this idea of having a model train on your data, on your device, without taking that data itself uh, to the centralized uh, data storage and to do things with it, right? So in this case, it's partially GDPR uh, sound, but there are still some concerns that the model could still memorize that edge uh, device's data. So I'd like to know how is federated learning moving now with some use cases that you know of that I can have a better understanding of it? If it's the solution or part of the solution behind uh, the possibilities of uh, fixing some of those distribution issues that we have. Can I take a stab, Harper? Yeah, yeah, definitely go over, Tom. After Tom, I love this question. I'm not shocked that Greg would ask it. So this is actually brilliant, and it's actually a form of integrating brilliance because you get to keep people's um, data private. You get to train on that data, but it's a hive mentality too. If the parameters can be shared, well, that that's still keeping your data private, and 
This is one of the tricks in reinforced learning models too, which suffer, of course, from they're trying to remove, uh, reduce the curse of dimensionality. That's why they don't train on all the data. And that's why they're so popular when the data gets too big. So the cool thing about this, Greg, is you, the, the model parameters can be sent back up to the cloud and there's kind of a hive learning going on with balancing the parameters. It's almost like an ensemble approach, just high level conceptual speaking. And uh, this way, all the models can benefit from the, the small sample subsets. But then there's also the balance of this. Well, you're trying to narrow down on that specific person. So the art of getting that right would take some research. But that's just my thought. Thank you, Tom. Any t thoughts or Carlos or Vin on federated yeah. learning? Carlos? I just wanted to throw out some keywords. So if you don't know what federated learning is, uh, there are useful keywords to look into, like edge computing and transfer learning. Those are also keywords you want to look into. But at a high level, uh, the idea is, like you said, like you, it's very dangerous to be recording data from users in ways they don't understand. Apple iOS 14 is coming out. It's going to be a whole thing over the ability of people to block data. It's going to have huge impacts on the apps you use, so pay attention to that. The idea with federated learning is that it gets you out of the problem of, okay, I'm going to record someone's audio, ship it up to Google Cloud. They're going to translate it for me and then give me the query results and send it back to me. Federated learning would put kind of a stock model that's transferred from the cloud model on your local device, allowing you to have local model learning on your device, which is extremely useful because you get, like Tom said, you get out of this idea of the cursor dimension of dimensionality. No longer are they trying to understand your words in the context of all other words that are similar to your sound. They just get what you said. Like you said this and you didn't like the results. So they clearly didn't understand you. So there's a lot of benefits of federated learning around like, okay, I actually like, there's actually more accuracy because it's just like this one guy. Um, but I'm not going to go too deep into it. I do recommend that you look into the intersections of blockchain and AI because federated learning and edge computing and blockchain, uh, there's a lot of people in that space trying to fuse all those together for those concerns, for the privacy concerns, for the GDPR concerns, for the actual just computing cost of storage and accessing data at high frequencies within the cloud. So it's a huge space, it's gonna blow up. Um, look up those keywords. So one thing you might wanna to try too, I don't know what kind of phone you have. Um, like I've been dorking around quite a bit with uh, AR kit uh, for Apple. And I think that's a really good way to understand um, how uh, Apple's handling stuff like federated learning. Um, so, I mean, embedded in uh, the augmented reality kit is also um, uh, machine learning models, uh, computer vision, uh, language recognition, and so forth. Um, and the fact that you can operate on this couple-year-old iPhone, um, you know, very sophisticated models, is really cool. So I would, it, again, depends what, if, you, if you're using uh, Android, get the equivalent, um, but yeah, I think it's AR core, but that might be like, an interesting way to sort of segue into it in a way that's kind of fun um, and check that out. It's an interesting conversation because on one hand, you have federated learning going on, uh, sort of distributing machine learning. On the other hand, um, I was talking to somebody from OpenAI last week about this, and it's like you have uh, almost this mega API thing going on right now where you have GPT-3, right? And so it's you're having these like two almost polar opposite worlds uh, um, where on one hand, you're training this, sort of this all-encompassing um, NLP API. Uh, and on the other hand, you have, um, you know, uh, individual ML, so... Great, great insights. That's probably what they use all these Docker things for, right? That sounds like a good use case for that. Um, ben, any anything to add to this uh, conversation about federated learning? I'm going to dance around an NDA. Um, 
trying to figure out how I can say this. I don't know if I can. You're in a really, really interesting space. I think you've already figured that out from everybody else's comments. I would agree with pretty much everything that's been said. Carlos has brought the majority of the points that you really want to look at up, um, especially blockchain. And I can't, uh, there's so much I want to say, but look at blockchain and think about how you would maybe use blockchain to understand what your data has been doing, what it may have done before it got to this point and where, you know, sort of a metadata tagging, I guess, thinking about blockchain that way and seeing if you can embed a whole lot of data about your data in a blockchain in a secure way so that you can have access not only to a particular data point, but also to maybe some of the transformations and things that have happened to that data point along the way um, as part of a sort of blockchain-ish type concept. And there's some other people out there that have written about this. I'm, I'm not, it's not coming up at the top of my head right now, but like I said, you're in a very, very interesting space and a lot of these answers are really, really good answers. And like I said, the, the blockchain piece of it would be something I would look at uh, as an important component of not only privacy, but also knowing a little bit more about your data itself, not just the individual data points, but maybe a bit of the journey and the metadata behind that journey and the provenance. So just, I think I heard you're under the NDA. I can also add some blockchain stuff since I'm not under your NDA. Uh, the the idea there is that like when we do, when we create models, we're creating them with certain data under certain parameters on certain devices with certain inputs. And what blockchain will let you do is it lets you like keep a permanent record of all of those steps and all of the, it's like almost like kind of automatic dependency management in some way. And what that lets you do though, is you have this metadata that also is a second layer of transfer learning so that on the same device, in the same conditions, you have a slightly different input. Well, like um, Tom said, you know, you're actually, you, now you're transferring parameters without transferring data. And it lets you get around a lot of concerns about GDPR. So definitely dive in on the blockchain and I'll send you a paper on blockchain for AI that details how all of this stuff with like how the blockchain, you know, secures the status of your devices and all that stuff is recorded in the chain. Great. Super. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Vin. Thank you, Carlos. I appreciate that. Ben, thank you, Tom. You, we had you on spotlight here. So while you were uh, making your way down the, uh, the slopes, we all got to, to join in on that. Um, ben, do you have anything to add about um, uh, federated learning? He's probably enjoying himself on the slopes. Um, I do really quick. So okay. federated learning, it became top of mind with COVID because hospital networks were unwilling to share their data. So Utah actually said, I talked to senior health informationists. They literally said enough people have not died. Enough people have not died in Utah to understand the disease. And to say that out loud sounds so stupid. They weren't sharing their data. They couldn't share it because of HIPAA. So yeah, federated learning needs to happen. There's, yeah, super important stuff. Happy, happy to send people. I have a non-provisional patent. I filed on tokenizing, kind of in the spirit of anonymizing learning. Uh, happy to send it to whoever's interested. Okay, that's it. Sorry for the distraction. All good, man. Thanks, Greg. Uh, was there? We hit on your question. Was that was that satisfactory? That 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 sets me in a nice route. So I appreciate the answers here. Thank you so so much, everyone. Right on. Next question we got up is, Amaya, are you still here? And again, thank you guys for being so patient and waiting for your questions to come up. Uh, after Amaya, we got Sorab, and then we can open it up, um, or we can you know, just call it an evening because um, we've been hanging around. It's been awesome. But Amaya, go up. 
Am I first of all? Am I saying your name right? Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. Hello, everyone. My name is Ameya. This is my very first uh, uh, happy hour. So very excited to seeing all of you and uh, very, very much inspiring. And thank you for all the advice. So uh, quick introduction. Uh, I'm a data scientist at Dow Chemical for last uh, 10 years. And uh, I put like my question in chat as well. But just to uh, say it again, for last 10 years, my team is using SaaS. So we are like a SaaS shop. Uh, starting like from like last month, my company has decided to actually transition from SaaS to Azure. And uh, we are learning about it. It's a very different landscape. Like SaaS is prepackaged with a lot of things. And I'm learning like in Azure, there are a lot of manual things we will have to do. Uh, the company is going to use Python uh, as a development language. So I'm just like kind of like frustrated and uh, struggling with how to uh, switch from the SaaS mentality to like now this cloud technology and Azure uh, landscape. So if you have any advice on like how to transition and how to change that mentality from SaaS to Azure. So I think first it's get good at Python before, before, I mean, you can probably simultaneously get familiar with cloud technology, but if you're doing everything in Python, get familiar using Python. I had to make the transition from SAS to Python myself. When I was a biostatistician, SAS was the language that we used for everything. And, you know, I was in that role for almost five years and I made the transition to Python. Um, and it was, wasn't too difficult. If you Google, um, it's something on the lines of uh, uh, pandas for SaaS users and like on pandas actual documentation, they show you the pandas equivalent operations for SaaS um, code. And you can kind of easily pick that up. Um, one thing you could do is, you know, you use SaaS day in, day out, you're good with it. You know exactly what your output should look like. Great. That's a baseline. That is a, a comparison for you. Now you can learn Python and recreate all of your work in SaaS in Python and check your answers and see, okay, did I get the same output? Was that exactly what I was expecting or not? Um, I did a whole bunch of that and I just got really, really good at, at Python and pandas really, really quickly. Um, so I'd love to hear from Dave on this as well. Um, Mr. Microsoft, go for it. So just so you guys know, May and I have a little bit of history. He was a student in one of the boot camps I taught at a former employer for data science. What's up, Amaya? Hi, Dave. <laughs> I, look, I look a little bit different. My hair is longer and my, and my, and my beard is gray now. Okay. So first question I would ask is, if you're moving to Azure, is are you planning on using the Azure uh, SaaS offerings in the cloud? For example, Azure Machine Learning. Because if you are, they have a drag and drop GUI based interface. The code behind is actually what's known as TLC and there's an internal Microsoft framework, which is all based in C sharp, not surprisingly. So from that perspective, if you're relying a lot on Azure machine learning, it's not really a one-for-one -one transition from SAS to Python, because ideally you're using all of the uplift that you get from using Azure machine learning, which is not going to be Python at all. It's going to be this kind of drag and drop. So it's more akin to enterprise minor in a way. So I guess that'd be my first question is, are you guys really planning on building everything from scratch in Python in Azure? Or are you planning on relying on the services? No, everything will be mostly building from scratch. So oh, okay. Writing like Python codes, like all the pipelines, data pipelines, then the code, and then the deployment pipeline. Okay, well, there you go. So so the, what Harpreet said is, is golden. You need to learn Python first. Yes. Of course, I'd be asking, I mean, I'm, I'd be asking, why are you moving to Azure? You know, what's the, what's the benefit of moving to Azure? Is it just for VMs then? 
So the company strategy, so DAO is moving uh, to cloud and uh, SaaS is expensive and uh, DAO already has tie up with Microsoft on all other different uh, systems. So they are asking all data scientists to move on Azure. Yeah, that's interesting. So that as, a, as the former enterprise architect, I'd be like, if you're moving to a platform like Azure, why aren't you taking maximum advantage of the stuff that I'm just it offers? I was going to say, that seems kind of odd. I mean, there's a lot of great managed services on Azure that you might want to take advantage of, especially if, for as a data scientist. Um, Azure ML Studio, for example, it's awesome. Uh, and so, um, yeah, to write everything from scratch, I don't know what the advantage would be. It actually might actually be more expensive. Um, it's, it's most of the cloud, right? Yeah, most of the use cases are hierarchical uh, forecasting, time series forecasting. Uh, so for that, we will have to write like all that model. I don't yeah. know how that helps with the drop, drag and drop. Yeah, you can write the model. Yeah, I would suggest like using, um, I mean, every cloud framework now has the ability to write a model, deploy it. Um, and I would highly, highly suggest using that, that big data infrastructure. Um, uh, it would be a cardinal sin to move to the cloud and have to like deploy your app using the Flask or something crazy like that. That would be... Weird. Yeah. So, <laughs> so for example, to Joe's point, Azure totally allows you to say, look, I want to use all the managed services except for right here. And I want to put my Python code right there and you okay. can do that. And that's what you want to do if you can. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the biggest mistake, so Matt and I, right. We, we worked with uh, AWS and GCP and soon to be Azure. And uh, the, the mistakes you see people make when they move into a cloud environment is that they try and replicate what they did on-prem in the cloud. And if you're trying to do it mono to mono, um, that sort of setup, it, it almost inevitably means it's going to be um, more expensive to have infrastructure running 24-7 and just cloud some more expensive if you run it that way. Try and do things the cloud native way. Um, I, I would suggest, uh, you know, reading the docs or maybe even getting a surge or something in Azure. I think they have the uh, AZ900 surge cloud fund now. Just understand like how Azure wants you to do stuff and then do it that way. It'll make your life a lot easier. The, the biggest trouble we see when people move to the cloud is they say, oh, well, I know what I'm doing, right? Obviously. Um, and then they get in and they're like, well, why am I suddenly spending all this money? Um, and so uh, yeah, the cloud, each cloud has its own way of doing stuff. Sorry, Matt, what'd you yeah. say? Oh, just going to say, I mean, generally with managed services, you, you've got to watch the costs, right? Some of these services are quite expensive, but generally you're going to save money on the auto scaling aspect and reducing your operational overhead. Like your data ops team can just be smaller if you're not constantly managing these instances or spinning them up and down it just happens automatically behind the scenes. Yeah, so the way I always, when I was back in my architect days, what I always said was, if you need the same number of software engineers when you move to the cloud, you're not doing it right. Bingo. Mm -hmm. Right on. Awesome tips there. So hopefully that's enough to get you uh, started, Matt. Yeah. Yeah, so, thank you. Uh, Eric, thank you for for reminding me. I saw this actually pop up on LinkedIn earlier this week as well. Uh, Matthew Blaza in the house just started a new job uh, with I believe is it Brinks? Yes, it was uh, Brinks uh, Home Security, not Brinks the, the 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 bank guys. Brinks the I making sure people don't get into your house, guys. Dude, that is uh, that is awesome, man. So congratulations, everybody! Like help help me and congratulate. Uh -huh. That is that is awesome. Thank you so much, guys. What was your journey like, man? What was your uh, journey from from when you first um, decided that you wanted to get into data to finally getting this job? Well, basically, I started out in digital marketing, you know, building out Facebook campaigns and Google when that first when that first happened. So, I mean, it was more of questioning. So, I mean, first it was, hey, okay, so why do I have these KPIs here? And then it was, okay, so how do I set up these KPIs? And then there was like, 
wait, is there some statistical significance to these KPIs? And what can I dig out of this so that I can, uh, it's just always been a, what can I learn new and what kind of insight can I pull out of this? So basically it, I would say it was a natural progression because of curiosity. And so your role is a data governance analyst. So talk to us about what, what that role kind of like, what are you, what are you, what is your company expecting you to take care of? And um, did you have to like train or learn on your own to, to be able to come up with the, the knowledge base for this role? Well, I mean, as far as like the knowledge base comes for this role, I did have some data governance background. Um, mostly, I mean, background with me is like ever since the pandemic started, a little bit before the pandemic started, I did work with startups and I was a consultant. So most of these are medium to small shops. I mean, they're not big, big organizations. So I'd be in there not only doing the data analysis, but I would be also working with ETL. And part of the problem, the part of the thing I found out as a lot of you guys have probably experienced is the data governance. I mean, inconsistent tables, poor, not, not very built out ETL documentation. So, I mean, it was mostly just experience from over, over consulting and working with startups. Um, as for the actual job itself, it was, it's more of, I'm sitting in the middle. I'm not, I'm not the data scientist. I'm not the data engineer or the data analyst, but I'm the guy who's there trying to work with multiple departments to standardize definitions, make sure data integrity is correct. And then that annoying guy who shows up in your GitHub in your commit saying, do we actually have this KPI correct? Is this right? I, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle there and I'm working, I'm in the middle between different departments. That's cool, man. Congratulations on, on getting the new role, man. That, that, I'm sure everybody here is just as happy as I am for you. That is freaking amazing, man. Great job. Uh, looking Thank forward you. to seeing you move along in your career and continue to do great things, man. So uh, let's see if anybody else has questions. I've gone through the queue here. Um, I'll open it up if, you know, again, thank you guys so much for sticking with me and hanging out and uh, trying to get to everyone here. Um, so hopefully you guys all had an opportunity to, to provide some assistance uh, for right now. Let's, let's roll it back up. Does, does Akshay still have a question? Because I think you had a question earlier, but um, we missed it. So if you have a question, go for it. Akshay. Like I see you right there. Okay. Hey, uh, yeah. I'm not sure because there was like two Akshay's in the chat. So oh. I don't know if that was me for the question or somebody else, but. If you got a question, man, go for it. I'd love to hear it. Uh, I did have a lot of fun coming into the call, but being part of this call, a lot of those were answered. So thank you to everybody. This is my first ever podcast attending uh, in this session. And I'm impressed with the kind of responses and experiences everybody brings. So looking forward to continuing that. Right on, man. Well, thank you for dropping in and thank you for joining the happy hours and make sure you log in to my actual podcast and listen to my other episodes. You got a couple of weeks to catch up before I start releasing new episodes. So um, tune in, plenty of time for you to do that. Uh, anybody else have questions that we didn't get to? Um, I'm looking at either um, Greg or Juan or Nishant. I have one, Herbert. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh, hey, everybody. Uh, it's great. My Fridays have become more memorable with these sessions. I'm just loving it. Uh, there's so much to gain. Uh, coming back to my question, um, what transi transition does it take to become a data scientist from data analyst? I mean, I keep reading and listening people saying there's not much transition. There's not much of a difference. But why, why are there two different titles? For this one, I'd love to hear from um, 
from either Monica or Giovanna or uh, Mikiko on this one. Um, let's let's start with uh, with Monica. Then we'll see if Giovanna has anything to say. And then Mikiko. Well, I guess it depends, um, depending on what the specific job roles are, because I've come across, you know, data scientist positions, which are truly data analysts. And I think the distinguishing factor is really those advanced analytical techniques. So machine learning or NLP or any of those more advanced versus just your fundamental uh, statistics, finding trends and uh, anomalies and such. That's at a very, very high level. There's there's probably so much involved and it's it's kind of, they blend into each other very much. Yeah, definitely. It's a great question. So I'd love to get um, a lot of people's input on this. Uh, Giovanna, go for it. And then after Giovanna, let's hear from, uh, from Ben. Yeah, it's always dealing with data. At the end, I think that 80% of our time is trying to clean data, try to... To, to see the correlation, all these amazing things, to know the story behind the data. So I think it's everyone has to have the data analyst skill. And sometimes people ask for data scientists, but at the end, a lot of people is working as a data analyst. So I think it's one is inside of the other one. So. It depends, but I think it's a, a very good start to to start uh, to learn about data analysis. So I think it's it's uh, important to know everything about how to handle data and um, because to build the model, if you have done this first part well, your model is going to go well and give you the predictions in a good way. So yeah, after um, actually, I've got a. Uh ask Vin to, to chime in here because we've had conversations about this uh, when you're on my podcast and a couple of weeks ago when you're in a uh, happy hour as well. Uh, I'd love to to have you break it down for us because I love the, the stance you take on this. Vin, that was, that was you. I don't know if you can hear me. Ben? Hello? Ben. I heard Ben. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking... <laughs> Don't worry, I'll, 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 I'll clip the silence on the actual podcast episode. Hey, good, I appreciate Vin. that. Yeah. yeah this is actually something I've studied, is the misclassification of people using the title jobs, uh, data scientists. Job titles are actually horrible, absolutely horrible labels, and we consistently use them. You know, So if we're talking about data analyst, the difference between a data analyst and a data scientist, or a data engineer and a data scientist, or a machine learning engineer and a data engineer, you're talking about a classification problem. And like I said, the label's terrible. The reasons why people will say, hey, there's no difference between you know, a data analyst and a data scientist, or some people even go as far as saying there's no such thing as a data scientist. It's all just over-glorified data analysts. And it really just depends on you know, what you've really interacted with as far as skill sets and capabilities as well as what sorts of results that you're used to getting from data scientists or whatever you call data scientists. So when you hear people talk about data analysts and the difference between a data analyst and a data scientist, data analyst is the second most frequent job that comes prior to having the job title data scientist. Does that mean anything? No. It's it's simply what is most commonly called the, the pre-data scientist or, or that role before 
And so, you know, when you hear a lot of these myths, what you're really hearing is people talking about a job title that they don't understand very well. And it ties directly into companies not understanding very well what data science is. And is it different from machine learning? Are the skills required to do deep learning different than the skills required to do data science? And companies don't have a good point of reference because they haven't seen any of this stuff in production. And those who have have seen very little of it actually be effective or functional in production. And if you want to understand what a data scientist is and how you're going to transition into the field, you have to look at a couple of target companies, a couple of groups that you would want to work with. Look at what the data scientists and machine learning teams are working on. Look at what they're actually accomplishing. We can look at what's getting into production and what's working, what's making money. Anything that they put on a quarterly statement, anything that they say we have booked revenue of a real value, like they put a number on it. And then they talk about it being tied to their machine learning efforts. And this is really rare. But if you look at that level of specificity, you can see how very few companies have come to terms with monetization. And that's really the, you start at the end with we're making money, and then you start working backwards to these are the actual people we need in order to continue to make money and to make more money on machine learning. And so if you want a career in the field, follow the cash, look for any sort of skill that you can use to create a tangible outcome. And when I say tangible, you gotta get beyond the buzzword of machine learning or data science and beyond model. I mean, what kind of model? Are we talking about marketing impacts? Are we talking about business cases around pricing strategy? Are we talking about decision support? And so you really have to dive into your career and where you want it to go. What niche of the field will help you to build value working for the types of companies that you want to work for? That's the only way you're going to get there is to sort of be smarter than the employers and the people that are trying to hire you right now, because the majority of people that want to hire you don't know why they want to hire you. They want to hire five years of Python experience and, you know, 18 years with uh, with a technology that's two years old. And, you know, and this is where the ridiculousness comes in is, again, back to that misclassification. I can call... I can call one of my dogs a data scientist. Does it mean that they're creating, you know, five times the value of their salary for the company? Well, I pay them in kibbles. So, I mean, yeah. you know, and it's really that ridiculous. That's really the point that we've gotten to. So if you want a good career, forget the job title, go after skills that will allow you to create, build, and add value. And really get, get really good at creating specific use cases within the business for machine learning Whatever that machine learning looks like, even if it's just analytics or a dashboard, get really good at tying what you just did to a dollar sign. That's really where machine learning is going, is that dollar sign and being able to monetize and being clear about how you have used a capability, not just a word like Python, but you've used a capability to build something and make cash. Sorry. Kind of hijack that for no, a second. I was <laughs> Sorry. absolutely love that, man. Actually, shout out to Al Bellamy in the house. Al Bellamy, do you want to talk to us about the difference between data scientist and data analyst? Love to hear what you have to say about that. Um, I'm not sure if your mic is functioning or not. Um, I don't see Mike next to your name on my screen. Um, Al Bellamy. All right. L- let's hear from, uh, I'd love to hear from Dave and, and Tom. Wait, Al, you are here. I am. Yeah, I've, I've been uh, kind of ducking in and out. So I, I keep waiting for this Friday where I actually get off work at a normal time. Sorry, that's my uh, backdoor light there. Um, yeah, so, okay. Yeah, I sort of helicoptered in here two minutes ago. So, um, I mean, I personally um, don't have the, the kind of hard skills to, 
to claim the title data scientist. If you if you told me to model something or or predict something, I you know I could do some regressions and and kind of basic predictions. But if you tell me to analyze something, then okay, cool, I can do that. Um, you know, let me let me look at the data. Let me do some EDA. Um, you know, some basic stuff in Excel. Uh, I'm I'm working on some some better things. I can uh, combine stuff in SQL now. But uh, yeah, I, I, um, as, as far as the path forward for me to go from analyst to scientist. Uh, that's what I'm still trying to figure out. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm new to even really thinking about that, uh, that path. So I love it. I love hearing about where people are in their journeys. Man. Thanks for, thank you for sharing that. I, I would say uh, after, after I, uh, after I get my little thing here, I'd love to hear from Dave or, or Tom on this, but I'd say the main difference is that a analyst analyzes a scientist discovers. Right. And I think that also teeters on the, subtle difference between inference and prediction. I would say that an analyst might spend more of their time on doing inferential type of tasks, descriptive type of tasks, whereas a scientist would be more, I guess, predicting and forecasting and things like that, if, if that makes sense. Um, Dave, Tom? I hope I don't intersect with Dave. I'll, I'll just chime in. Um, I love Eric's Sims answer in the comments. He, I think he's getting to the heart of it. And I want to point out, we, we are the uh, historical figures of the data age. Go figure. I mean, we're just now seeing an explosion on something that's going to r- radicalize what we're doing, attention and transformers. And the terminology is just going to be messy for a while. And you know, what a data analyst does, what a data visualizer does, what a data scientist does, they're just going to overlap a lot for a while. I find that the the more I'm trying to do a good job, and I, you know, I stop and constructively criticize myself, I realize, you know what, you need to be more like Kate Stratney in your pipeline work, so you'll do a better job, so that you really understand the, the data better before you just dive in and apply a model. And um, so I think I just love it that we're all still learning from one another, but, and, and I don't mean this critically, but I, I kind of get irritated by a hyper concern with titles and differences of roles. I know we got to do it a little bit, but there's still, we're just so early in this data age. We, we've got to be flexible and learn on the fly. And it's just still going to be messy for a while. That's all I'm saying. But I really did like Eric's answer. I think he's getting at the spirit of what we need to think about. Eric, do you want to share your answer with uh, with the, the podcast audience who cannot access sure. your chat? Yeah. So I did just a, a little bit of research about it and found out that like physicians didn't actually have specialties at all until like about like 200 years ago is when it finally started. And so as medical science has progressed and roles and titles have become super specialized because it used to be that, you know, all of your physician tools could pretty much fit in a bag that you would take wherever you were practicing your medicine. Right. Um, But then things got more complex took trial and error and regulation. There were a lot of medical schools just handing out degrees for basically no work. You know, it was, it was 
kind of a bonanza, right? I don't know where else we might have ever seen a bonanza of any sort like that. But anyway, uh, so anyway, it's not going to take 200 years to subdivide data science. Obviously, like we move at breakneck speed now, but it's helpful to me to keep that in mind that there's no point in chasing after a title because right now it may be super valuable. And then in like five years, it's going to be like a dinosaur title because all these cooler, newer, you know, junior data unicorn titles will have come out that people are are way more into and so this isn't the first time an industry has matured and specialized dave let's hear from you and then after dave let's hear from mikiko yeah so seven years ago i would have said if you're not doing machine learning you're not a data scientist and i was wrong i was completely wrong because i used to work at an insurance company and actuaries would be like dude we've been doing data science for decades man we've been using data to drive business results and then the OR people, the operations research people would be like, no, 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 wait a second. We started doing this in World War II, man. We were data scientists before the actuaries were data scientists. So I wouldn't worry too much about the title per se. I really like what Vin had to say, which is target what you want to do. Grab the skills that you think are going to be useful to deliver business value using data. Like in most of my content on LinkedIn, I typically use phraseology around this idea of like, are you a professional that wants to drive business results with data? I don't say, do you want to be a data scientist? I don't say that because maybe you work in HR, maybe you work in supply chain. These days, I don't think it really matters. Focus on uh, how I can drive business results with data and then work back to the skills that you need. And that's going to be all the basics. It's probably going to be SQL. It's going to be some sort of scripting language like R or Python. It's going to be some statistics, not nearly as much statistics as you think, by the way, in practice, generally speaking. Not even close. And it's definitely not as much machine learning as you think, generally speaking, as well. You can get away with very few simple and powerful techniques unless you're in some sort of specialized area like self-driving cars or something like that. So my advice that I give first is like, take my opinion as one data point. Go get other data points, by the way, first thing. Second of all, do research. Look at the companies, look at the roles that you want to do. Cross-reference the descriptions of what you're going to do, what kinds of technologies they list. And then that'll give you some idea of what you should, what you need to do in terms of skills and capabilities to actually make it to a data scientist title. Or maybe you can just be a data savvy professional. Maybe you work in marketing and you figure out a better mousetrap in marketing. Awesome. Guess what? You're going to get rewarded for it and you're going to build up your portfolio and then that can take you anywhere you want to go. Thank you very much, Dave. By the way, everybody wants to see 2013 Dave with the short hair and the earrings, apparently. Uh, Mikiko? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so, Naresh, just some background. Uh, so, I start off in, like, biz ops slash growth hacking slash, like, whatever the title was, like, in Silicon Valley at that time. Um, then I moved into, like, a data analyst role titled, right? And then I moved to a titled data scientist role. And then now... I basically do everything under the sun except, you know, sign the vendor contracts for the startup that I'm at, right? So the the lines there are a little bit more blurry, uh, right? But I think like uh, to kind of summarize everyone's points, right? So the first off is um, historically, uh, data scientist was just the catch-all bucket when uh, DJ Patel wrote his piece. And uh, we've had some more roles that have specialized since then. So, you know, data scientists used to be this idea of like the PhD who was also the super sort of computer, you know, engineer and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, they could talk to people and not make them feel like idiots, you know, in the in the boardroom, um, because that was just kind of like the first like that was the V1. Right. 
And the V2, as we saw some other roles pop up, it was like the data analyst, data scientist, and then I think the data engineer. I remember seeing like a bunch of blog posts where like those were the three, right? And it was basically like, like strategy slash like living with the business in the middle was kind of like still the research person um, who would kind of build their own models, do their own analyses. I either produce like a white paper for the, the company or to, you know, a prototype or understand like, oh, this new algorithm, can it, can we in- incorporate into the product? And then you had the data engineer who worked on the infra. And then I think now we're kind of going into like the V3, 4, if you're like some companies, let's just skip the number, go to like V8, right? Where you're seeing some more specialized roles like machine learning engineer, all this other stuff. Um, so, you know, one thing to sort of remember is that there's like this historic trend as Eric pointed out. Uh, the second reason why you see those titles and they sometimes are the same thing is because companies will use them as traps to try and like get people into the role. Um, they'll say like, well, we can't offer you as much money, but we'll offer you a title because we know we can kind of sell it to you as a, like, if you have a data scientist title, then it's easier to get recruiters in the future. Right. Um, so there's that. And then I think the third point that people brought right is that sometimes hiring managers actually just don't really have a good understanding of what those needs are. And typically you'll see that in like an embedded sort of structure where it's like a hiring manager on the business side is hiring for like a data scientist or a data analyst who lives with them. Right. So you do have those kind of like three factors going on. Um, now that being said, right, like some companies like Facebook and Microsoft, they're specialized enough where they have what are called decision scientists. Right. So they have a data analyst, they have a data scientist or a research scientist, and they have a decision scientist. A data analyst is still like living with the business partners is still helping guide the business. A decision scientist usually is is more involved in the experimentation and, and inference aspect. And then the research data scientist is, is just doing research. Right. So part of making that switch potentially is first off um, looking at companies where, you know, you could make that tile change just, just by becoming more senior in your kind of existing role. Um, a lot of companies will be willing to negotiate that title if you, you know, if, if they're flexible enough. Some companies like Google, Apple, they do have a ranking ladder. So you can't just negotiate a title. You do have to actually have like a switch in responsibilities. Uh, so that's one method, right, is you you negotiate your own company. The second way to do it sometimes is honestly just going to another company where maybe they're doing the same work or something similar and they're just calling it a data scientist title. Um, you know, but I think those are sort of like shortcuts, right? I think um, you really want to, as everyone pointed out, you want to identify the kind of work you want to be doing, um, whether it's, you know, working with a business and all that, doing research, doing engineering, um, and then just trying to figure out, well, what is the next iteration in that sort of particular track? And I think that's probably the best way to go. My particular trajectory, I started off in the business side and in growth. Uh, as a growth hacker, um, moved over to analytics because at that point I had really enjoyed using data to help inform the business, moved to data science because I, I like the idea of focusing in on a problem, um, you know, researching it. Um, and now I'm moving over to the engineering side because I like the idea of building products and that's just kind of how it is. So you can make the switch either through the title or through um, getting more senior in your responsibilities, moving to company. Um, but I would encourage just understanding, like, what's the kind of work you want to be doing, like, let's say the next, like, one or two years from now, um, and then sort of planning around that. Absolutely love it. Thank you very much, Mikiko. Um, last call for questions. Um, if anybody has a question, just type it out into the chat. I also just want to say, like, yeah, obviously, man, ignore the titles. When I was 
leaving grad school 2013, I was interviewing for roles that were called predictive modeler. Uh, I was in the actuarial field. And now that job title doesn't exist, but those were data scientists doing data science work, which was just like random for us in, in SAS. Tom, how you doing? Real quick shout out. Uh, everybody, if you'd quickly hold your hands like this and then start doing this for Harpreet. Harpreet, your highest attendance, happy hours. You built an incredible community. We praise these. Good job, brother. This is awesome. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, we had 42 people show up today. Um, I mean, uh, there's so many people that I wanted to hear from that I just didn't get a chat to. Matt Housley, thank you so much for being here and being so active in the chat, man. I appreciate you. Um, everybody else who's been so consistent showing up, people here from day one. I started this thing 13, 14 weeks ago. 14 weeks ago, and it was just like me and four people. And then like one week, Vin came. And then one week, Srivatsan came. And then after that, it was just like 30 people minimum. Uh, it's been awesome. Thank you guys for spending Can I ask a question? news with me. Yeah, definitely. So like, why, why did you start this? When? No, why? Why? So like the podcast in general, or just the open office hours? Yeah, the, the, the office hours. Yeah. So for data science dream job, dude, I do like multiple office hours a week, like, you know, six hours a week, pretty much of, of office hours. And that's great if you can afford the program because um, it's expensive. And I figured, how can I help more people by using a skill that I already have during a time of day where I'm usually doing this already? Um, and, you know, I figured, all right, let me just do open office hours and invite people in and help them out somehow. And that's kind of how it started. Um, so Fridays at 4.30, most of my office hours are usually at, at 4.30, 4.30 to 6 p.m., and so Fridays were open, had nothing to do. Obviously, I can't go to the pub anymore after work. Um, so let's do office hours and and, and hang out with people. Um, that's kind of how it started. Um, and, you know, just inject more of the data science into the podcast, because I know I've kind of shifted in a new direction where I'm interviewing just authors of books that I find amazing. Uh, and I've been fortunate enough to to convince people to come onto my show, like, like landing Robert Greene, like that's mind boggling to me, but more of a way to keep data science as part of the podcast while I venture off and explore other areas for interviews uh, and still keep that element um, with the podcast. Yeah. Really that's cool. Thanks. Yeah. So thank you guys for joining. Um, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy new year. For those of you that, that, join the festivities and wore your, your festive sweaters. Thank you so much uh, for those of you that joined me in a drink. Cheers. I really appreciated that. Um, and if, if you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, I spend the most time with 25 to 30 amazing individuals every Friday. Um, you guys are like the only people I hang out with nowadays. So thank you so much for, uh, for being here and just helping me raise my average that much higher. Um, Take care. We'll be back January 8th for the next happy hour. And they're happening every Friday after that. Um, new stuff happening with the podcast next year. I've got some awesome, awesome guests coming on the show. I've got some awesome podcast episodes recorded. I'm really excited to, uh, to share all of this with you guys. And, um, just, you know, hope you guys keep coming back. Hope you guys continue to, to show up and, and help support everybody. Thank you so much, guys. Take care. Have a happy holidays. And remember, you got one life on this planet, so why not try to do something big? Take care, everybody.